Okay, welcome everybody to, to today's Scottsdale Big Book study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is the 3rd of September, 2023. My name is Audrey and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater for, from County Mead in Ireland and I'll be your host today. Our co-hosts are Suelle and Aisha. Um, if you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or the co-host by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker, Harlan, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answers that follow will not be recorded. We will post the link to previous week's recording in the chat function. We ask that you make sure your microphone is on mute at all times during today's study and also turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from the screen for any reason. And I will now turn the meeting over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you so much, Audrey. I really appreciate all your service to Sue, to Maria, to uh, Lauren Ann, if she's here, which I don't think she is. But uh, to anybody who does service, Asia, who anybody who does service for this, there is so much more to this than just me speaking. There are the people who download the recordings onto our website. There are the people who maintain the website. Now I understand there's going to be something else with the website. I'm not quite sure what that is. I don't really understand it, but it's supposedly going to be very good. I'm not sure. Maybe it'll bring about world peace. Who knows? But the bottom line is, is that um, there are lots and lots of people who are instrumental in this that are not me. And before we do anything this morning, I just want to um, remind you that with daylight savings time ending, on the 6th of November, this meeting will not change times unless you are in the state of Arizona. I change so you don't have to. Arizona is a weird place. We don't change our clocks here. And neither does Hawaii. And, 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 and there are, uh, I think parts of Indiana don't either. But we don't change our clocks. And that actually makes it more confusing because we're on mountain time for some of the year. We're on Pacific time for most of the year, but it really kind of makes it confusing. So what I do is I will change to a later time so you don't have to. If you're on any of our Scottsdale meetings, uh, Sunday through Friday at, in the evening, those will begin one hour earlier unless you are in the state of Arizona. Those will change, but these meetings on Saturday morning will not change. And I also just wanted to remind you that on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of December, we are taking our big book out on the road, and I'm going to be doing a big book workshop in White Plains, New York, and that will be in Westchester County, New York. Registration for this is, to my understanding, not open yet. When it opens, I will bring that information to you, but I would certainly love to see some of our East Coast people or whatever coast, if you want to come out there, that would be wonderful too, but that will take place the 9th, 10th, and 11th of December in White Plains, New York. I hope to see some of you out there. We're going to have a really good weekend. We're going to cover some good ground, and it's going to be fabulous, I hope. Okay, we have been talking about chapter four, we agnostics. Now, again, he entitled the chapter, we agnostics, not you agnostics, 
to the agnostic, those agnostics. Why did he entitle the chapter, we agnostics? The reason that he entitled the chapter, we agnostics, is because he knows that in every single one of us, no matter how fervent our belief might be in a God or in a religion or anything else, what is agnostic? It's someone who just isn't sure. Now, you may be sure that there's a God, but we have to work on the idea that God is applicable in all areas of my life, in the food, in the money, in the whatever. God is applicable in every single area of my life, every crevice of my existence. I want to invite God in. And that is why he really entitled that chapter, We Agnostics, because in each and every one of us, whether we be an agnostic, whether we be an atheist, whether we be a uh, believer, we may probably have pockets of doubt whether or not God will intercede in our behalf in all areas of our life. And that may not look the way we want it to look, but in the long run, God's will is always better. And the key word is always better than my will. I'm very, very uh, human. And so I can only see as far as I can see. God can see everything, at least the God of my understanding can. But whatever that is for you, that is for you. And that's not wrong. I have my belief. You have your belief. And that's fine. We're going to start out this morning on page 47. And we are going to go into the guts, the blood and guts of step two. And we're going to take a look at this first line. We're going to start with, we needed to ask ourselves on page 47. While you're turning your big book there, I just want to remind you that we have already covered something in this chapter that I want to reiterate because it means, it, it needs, not means, it needs to be reiterated. And that is, the main object of this book, I'm on page 45, the main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. If that is the main object of this book, then that darn well better be the main object of my life. Because abstinence, sobriety, that is wonderful. But that's not the main object of this program or the main object of my life. Now, please don't call Albuquerque. Don't call Los Angeles and say that darn Harlan, he said we don't have to be abstinent. I never said that in my life. What I'm saying is abstinence is not the end result of all my work here. A spiritual awakening as the result of the steps is what I'm really, really aiming for. And so in my quest to be recovered, in my quest to establish a closer relationship with the God of my understanding, in my quest to every day be further away from the food and closer to my higher power, Abstinence is a tool, but it is not the be-all and the end-all. Abstinence will not treat this disease. I'm going to say that again because I can hear some of you falling off your chair. 
Abstinence alone will not treat this disease. It is part of the picture. Yes, definitely. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He made up his mind not to touch another drop until he had been successful in business. He remained bone dry for 25 years. 25 years, he didn't touch a drop of liquor. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle and he was dead within four years. Now, in that scenario that we read in chapter three, the chapter entitled More About Alcoholism, you would think if you were me coming into this program that being abstinent for 25 years would buy me a genie in a bottle, the Clampett Mansion, a zillion dollars, and my own private jet plane. Because man, I've been told from the time I was a little boy, all you got to do is lose weight and everything will be okay. Let me assure you, I've lost over 500 pounds and I still have challenges in my life. And so for me, and I bet for you, no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never ever rise above the level of a human being. And as a human being, I'm going to need God more and more instead of less and less, because the disease has the two characteristics, the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind, but it has three traits. It is permanent. It is progressive. It is fatal. So as a permanent progressive and fatal condition, I need the intervention of a power much, much greater than myself. I cannot on my own fend off the effects of this disease. And when I allow that power into my life, what word am I called back to in step two? And that word is sanity. You see, God didn't, or excuse me, Bill Wilson didn't, he scribed the book, God dictated the book, I'm convinced of it, but God didn't put in step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. He didn't put in there uh, a power greater than myself would restore me to abstinence. Those would have been very meager goals, very low ceilings. What he put in there was, came to believe. That means it's going to be a journey rather than a destination. When we start to see recovery as a destination, then it becomes very dangerous. This is a lifetime journey and you will never arrive. I'm going to say that again. The quest for recovery is a lifetime journey to which we never arrive. I had, a, I, she wouldn't mind me mentioning her name. I have a friend of mine, her name is Naomi. And I did a big book workshop in New Jersey, Mount Laurel, New Jersey, a number of years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, maybe as many as 10. But anyway, I was in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And this, we were just about to break for lunch. And she came up to me and she said, can I call you when I'm done with this? steps. And I said, no. And she looked at me like I was the purple people eater with four heads. And I said, because when you're done with the steps, you'll be dead. 
and there's no phones in the box. And she got it. She just smiled and, oh, I didn't, you know, she just, you could see on her face, the epiphany that she was getting was a beautiful thing to behold. So there is no arriving at a destination. We continually work at it because no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never ever rise above the level of a human being. All right, as a precursor to what we're going to read this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to go back to page 12. And when you go to page 12, you're going to see something that is going to tie beautifully into what we're going to read this morning. And what it says on page 12 is, it was only a matter, you see where that says it's in italics, and it's about Oh, maybe one or one third or uh, maybe more down the page. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. You can go back to page 47 now. So all I need to be is willing to believe. There is nothing in this book. There is nothing in OA. There is nothing in this world that says you must believe or you must believe in a certain God, a certain religion, or in a certain way. Remember that Bill Wilson himself had a grandfather who raised him. And Bill Wilson's grandfather was very certain that there was a God, but he resisted this idea of a preacher telling him how he must believe. And this rubbed off on Bill very strongly. And Bill didn't like to be told how to believe or what to believe in. And when it says in the book that Ebby said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And then Bill Wilson later says, I saw, I felt, I believed. And that was when he got the message. What did he see? He saw recovery. What did he feel? He felt hope. What did he believe that God could and would help him if he sought God? That's what he believed. And it was at that moment, I, can't, I saw, I felt, I believed in chapter one, Bill's story, that the message of the spiritual awakening, the message of the power greater than himself was absolutely delivered to Bill Wilson. And that's when he got it, that this is exactly, this is the, exactly the solution to his problem. Bill started drinking in 1917 and Bill stopped drinking in late 1934. And as he never drank again, that is absolute evidence that this absolutely 100% works. And on page 88, it says it works. It really does where nothing else will. Diets never worked. Food plans, I mean, I have to have one, but diets and AIDS candy and Metrocal and a pay and way and exercise programs and all these other things, those never worked for people like me. I needed the help of God. I needed the, I needed the spiritual awakening that came about as the result of the working of the steps. Now let's go to page 47 and we're gonna begin today and what we're going to see here on page 47 is the paragraph, 
we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. That's the paragraph we're going to start on. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? So let's take a look at that sentence because it's very, very key to the whole thing here, okay? Do I believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? I believe that every person here has the ability to look around at the world that we live in and see the sky and the moon and the world and the people and the, all of the things in our world and know in our hearts that we did not create those things. We didn't create them. And we look at the world and we often see things that we don't like. You know, it says in the big book, in Bill's story about the wars that had been fought and we know all man's inhumanity to man. And we know all these terrible things that have happened in our world. And we say to ourselves, how could there be a God if there was a Holocaust? Or how could there be a God if there was chattel slavery? How could there be a God if the ugliness and filth of religious and racial prejudice exist and existed in the world, both in the past and in the, in the present? How can there be a God? And my response is, those are not products of God. Those are products of human beings and their fallibility because God did not put a bunch of people on the world to be robots. He gave them the ability to do good, but he gave them the ability to do bad. And some people choose to do bad. We have, yep. we have all manner of people here. There's 155 of us here so far. There are not one, there's not one person here that doesn't have some observation about the world that we live in and say, I think this should be different. Well, so do I, so do I, but walk me through how me eating pizza today is going to save somebody from the horrible nightmare of all the things that we've just talked about. If you can walk me through how that's going to save them, well, now you've got my attention. But what I can tell you is very clearly this. I am a human being and I am not the equal of the power of this disease. This disease ransacked me from the time I was a child. This disease made me the object of ridicule. This disease made me codependent. It made me alanonic. It made me to the point where I was so scared of what you thought of me that I would be a Republican if you were a Republican. I would be a Democrat if you were a Democrat. I would like blue if you liked blue. I would like red if you liked red. Just don't reject me and don't dislike me. And that never got me what I wanted in life. And that was a phony false shell of an existence that does not hold water. I was an object of ridicule. I was an object of ridicule from the time I was a child. 
I have been an object of ridicule. There have been people that said things to me you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. I can't count the hundreds of people that have slapped my stomach and slapped my rear end and pointed out things to me in public like, you're fat. Why do you weigh so much? Why do you eat so much? I didn't know them and I had to pretend that it didn't bother me. And every one of you have gone through your living hell or you wouldn't be here now. As my friend Larry in Chicago often says, nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here because things went well for them. We come in here because things went horribly, horribly wrong. And so there's not one person here that came in here because they got up in the morning and said, wow, my life is fantastic. Oh my God, look at my bank account. They're notifying me that I need to start more accounts because you can only put a certain amount in each bank account. And look at my car, look at the brand new Rolls Royce I'm driving, it's beautiful. I think I'll get up and join OA today. Things are that good in my life. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Now, when we look at these things and we all have the chip on our shoulder when we come in here that God didn't do for me what I asked him to do. The one thing I can tell you that I've been asking God for from the time I was three years old is please make me thin. And this is not just a disease of what the food did to me to make me fat. And you've heard me talk about this before. I'm going to say this again, because this does tie in to the faith that we have or don't have in God. This disease made me hate myself, loathe myself. When I caught a glimpse of myself in a mirror or a store window, I hated the image that came back at me. I felt apart from this world, not a part of this world. I judged the people in this world. I was either better and smarter than them, or I was not as good as them. I became overly dependent upon people, and they let me down. I became very, very sick in my mind. I lied when the truth would have been better. I lived in filth and squalor. I was ashamed of my of my existence. I was ashamed to be alive. I wanted death. I wanted to die much, much more passionately than I wanted to live. Now, many of my father's friends when I was a little boy were Holocaust survivors that came out of the concentration camps, mostly Auschwitz because most of my father's friends were Polish and Southern Russian. But many of them were Poles, Polish Americans, who came out of the camps, Jewish people who came out of those camps with the tattoos on their arm, and they would grab my face and say, they would say to me, live until you die, sweetheart, live until you die. And I believed for a very long time that in order for me to live until I die, I had to accumulate a large amount of potato chips and a large amount of Twinkies and Susie Q's and chocolate milk and milk duds and Kit Kat bars and you name it, Almond Joys. 
not Mounds bars. Why would anybody buy a Mounds bar when they can buy an almond? Obviously, these are not Jewish people buying the Mounds bars. Why would you spend the same dime and not get an almond that you could spend and get the almond? I never understood that, but that's for another time. Okay, fine. That was what I interpreted in my crazy, sick, warped, compulsive overeater mind that was living until I died. Now I understand that living until you die means that you help as many people, that you become who you were born to be. And I cannot will myself to be an independent person today. I say yes when I mean yes, 99, 100% of the time. I say no when I mean no. I am who I am. I am what I am. If you like me, great. If you don't, okay. Now, I want to be liked. I do. I have that just as strong as you do. But what I understand is that's not realistic. That's not part of the world that we were born into. And somebody very, very wise who's dead now, he said to me on a freezing cold winter night in Chicago, and this was at Swedish Covenant Hospital on the north side. He said, do you know what most people think about us most of the time? I said, no. He said, nothing. They think nothing. They think nothing because they're out living their lives thinking about them. So I was, it was a process. I became emancipated over years from this shackle of what people are going to think of me and what they're going to like me, not like me, whatever it is. It is a prison. And it was God alone. Yes, I'm, I don't have a big, I don't have a, a big uh, a Rolls Royce in front. No, I have challenges in my life. Absolutely. But I'm not shackled to, oh my God, what's this person going to think? Oh my God, what's that person going to think? I'm just going to live my life. I'm just going to live my life. I hope I'm making sense because sometimes I doubt my own brain. Let's continue with the reading. As soon as a man can say he does believe or is willing to believe, either you believe or you're willing to believe are on equal footing. Don't, don't worry about it. Either one or the other is fine. We emphatically assure him he is on his way. Now, even the most self-centered have to say, as you look around in life, look at some of the pictures on Zoom right now. We've got an Arizona sunset with a big saguaro cactus, and there's puppies, and there's kittens, and there's faces. Did I create any of that? Absolutely freaking not. I didn't create one thing in the panoply, the assortment of what I'm looking at, not one thing here did I create. And I stand in awe every day and more awe tomorrow and more yet the next day as I look around at this creation called earth, life, the planet, the people, the animals, the trees, the stars. And I say to myself, I'm in awe of the power that exists in the world, whether you call that power whatever, or you call it whatever you want to call it, does not matter. You don't have to call it anything. 
You can call it Sam. You can call it God, group of drunks, God, great outdoors, God, whatever. Whatever you choose to call it, however you want to believe, whatever you want it to believe, what all that's required is a willingness to believe that there is indeed a power greater than yourself. So we've taken this struggle off the board. And a lot of us, when we come into this room, this we, oh my God, we run out when we hear this word God. I know I didn't like it. I never found God in a synagogue. In the synagogue that I went to as a child, I found a lot of judgmentalness. I found a lot of, of, of people that were judgmental and petty and small. But that's not God. That's people. God didn't create that. He didn't encourage that. He just made whatever he made and did what he did. And people chose at times to be petty, judgmental, and small. And who was judging them? Who was petty? Who was pedantic? Who was judgmental? But me. I was judging them for judging others. I was the judger. I didn't see it. It took me a long time to see it. Those were just human beings trying to carve out a world for themselves, trying to carve out an existence for themselves. And I couldn't see that. I just wanted them to be perfect. And I wasn't perfect, but I often expected perfection from the people around me. How unrealistic was that? And when I got in touch with that through inventory, when I got in touch with that, it really helped to emancipate me from all these ill feelings that I had been carrying around for almost half a century. It was time to let it go that they were just people. People in a synagogue are not God, they're people. Let's continue. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. So we have, it is repeatedly proven that this works. Look around you at the people that are in recovery. There isn't one of them that has a speck, a molecule, an atom. Uh, there isn't one of us who is in recovery today that has a, an atom of something that you don't have. The only thing we might have that you might not have yet is the willingness to believe that there is a power greater than myself. Whatever you choose to call it. Let's continue. That was great news to us. I'm on page 47, by the way, bottom. That was great news to us, for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, which seemed difficult to believe. Now, one of the things that seemed very difficult for me to believe is that this God that they're talking about gives a damn about my food, my money, my lack of girlfriend, 
my whatever, my financial situation, my health and my well-being, because he had never been there seemingly for me before. And he let me wallow in a body that was so morbidly obese, it wasn't even funny. And I was in constant, constant pain, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. My soul was so injured. And the body often cries the tears that the eyes refuse to shed. The body cries the tears that the eyes refuse to shed. And I was tantruming against God with a knife and a fork and my hand in a potato chip bag, a bakery box, a bag of food. I was tantruming with food for my entire life. Let's continue. When people presented us with spiritual approaches, how frequently did we all say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it would work if I could only believe as he believes, but I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level you do have what any of us has. You look around you and you say to yourself, I wish I had what that guy has, that lady has, that person has. You do have it. It is inside of you and it's ready and willing and able to come out. There is not one person here and there are 167 of us right now. There's not one person here that has some pipeline to God, some pipeline to willpower, some pipeline to the characteristics you admire most in a human being that you yourself do not possess. There is no can't. There is will and won't. I am a, a student of Master Yoda. And Master Yoda said, there is no try, do or do not. Gandhi said, there are two types of people in the world, those who believe they can and those who believe they cannot, and both are correct. So by the belief that you may have that you can't, what you're saying is, I won't. And by changing that willingness, by changing that attitude to, yes, I will, you become, yes, I can. Yes, I can does not precede, yes, I will. It follows, yes, I will. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again till I die. The most overrated thing in program is willingness. Willingness to me is trash. You know what I believe? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that when I took the action and I wasn't willing, the willingness came. When I wouldn't take the action and I prayed for willingness, the willingness did not come. Clancy Immeslin, one of my heroes, one of the circuit speakers who I admire the most said often, recovery happens when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic so that the feelings of difference in the second alcoholic start to subside and he begins to take action after action, which he does not yet believe in. And it is at that point that recovery takes place. Don't wait for willingness to act on faith. 
Don't wait for willingness to do the things you know you want to do to recover. If you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then, you're, then you can take certain steps. How do you demonstrate your willingness, which I believe is trash, by taking the action in the face of unwillingness. By taking the action in the face of unwillingness, do you then become willing? And what is the action being called upon here in step two? Not a great deal of Herculean things. We're not asking you to take Sisyphus's place. Sisyphus was the God that Zeus doomed. He had to push the boulder up the hill throughout his entire life. And if he could get the boulder to the top of the hill, he could stop. But every time he got the boulder up there, it rolled off the other side. So he ends up pushing this boulder to the top of the hill throughout his entire life. We're not asking you to be Sisyphus. All we're asking is that you be willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And how do you demonstrate that willingness? By reminding yourself on a daily basis, I believe that there is a power greater than myself. What could be simpler? <clears throat> what could be simpler? Let's continue. We're at the very bottom of 47, last sentence of 47. Besides a seeming inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped, I'm at the top of 48, by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. I was mad at God. My mom was mentally ill. My mom was really not there for me. Well, she was in, in every sense that she wanted to be. She loved me very much. I never doubted that she loved me. There's no doubt there that my mother loved me. So did my dad. But my mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. My mother could be a three-year-old one minute. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic the next minute. And my mother could be very, very together the next minute. You never knew what you were going to get or how long it was going to last. And this is what I lived with my entire life. My dad was old when I was born. He was 54 years old on the day I was born. He was more like an affectionate grandfather than he was a dad in a lot of ways. He was old. He was an immigrant. He was, he was poor. He didn't, he didn't speak the, hardly speak the language. He, there was just so much he just didn't know. He did the best he could. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski, very, very different. I wanted Rob and Laura, I got Max and Virginia. So I had a chip on my shoulder against God. Why didn't you give me Rob and Laura Petrie? Well, you know what I found out? Except for Richie Petrie, nobody gets Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. We get what we get, and it is what it is, and it's okay. And you know what? As kids go, I had it pretty damn good. Compared to some of your stories, compared to some of the things I hear on a daily basis, man, it could have been a lot worse. But in my mind, it was as bad as it could have possibly gotten because I got screwed and I didn't get the good parents I deserved. I wanted a, a, a dad who had a big business 
and could leave me with a big business and make me rich, make it so I didn't have to work. I never had to care about things. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. And then I, I suffered pain in the world. I suffered rejection. I suffered all kinds of pain, just like you did. But in my mind, these pains, these injuries, these things were unique unto me. And they were not because I have an active ego. And what are the three jobs ego has? Make me right, make me different, and make me feel good right now. So if I'm going to be right and I'm going to be different, somehow all of you got the plan for life, but I didn't. Once again, I got screwed. Well, no, I really didn't. There are areas of my life where I'm very proficient. And there are areas of my life that because of my upbringing, I, I mold into very easily and very well. And like all human beings, there are areas I don't transfer into easily or well. And those are the issues that I have to either work on or just accept that because I'm not proficient there, I'm gonna probably miss out on some things and that, that will hurt me. So I'm gonna do the best I can. I'm gonna do the best that I can. But the real truth of the matter is, my mom and dad did the best that they could. They did the best that they could. Let's continue. Many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. The mere mention of God gets some people crazy. It's God as you understand God. It's God as you interpret that God to be. Nobody but a baby or maybe a puppy or a kitten looks at the world as a perfect utopia a perfect Valhalla, a perfect utopia, a perfect work of art. And we all have these injuries. Thank God we have them because those become your greatest asset so you can help the next person. Because if you had grown up on the good ship lollipop and you've never been rejected or you've never had hurt or you've never suffered pain, you would not be able to relate to or help the next person. And what a shame that would be. And so by sponsoring, you get to put those liabilities into the column of assets. You use those things to save people's lives. You use those things to help the next person. Let's continue. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned. What sort of thinking? This antagonism that we feel at the mere mention of God. We don't have to carry out resentments against God. He's not the enemy. She's not the enemy. It's not the enemy. Whatever it is you believe in, she, it, them, he, whatever, it, those, whatever you believe, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Let's continue. Though some of us resisted, we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings. 
Faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Faced with alcoholic destruction, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. Because I got a little news for you and me. There's no other way out of hell. There is no other exit from hell. You got this disease. I'm sorry too, but I'm really not because you can now have a great life. You can have a life that includes real friends, real people in this program. This is the greatest way of life imaginable. You know, I've suffered to the point of crying on a thousand different occasions. I have suffered to the point of begging God to let me die. I have suffered to the point where I took this out on my mother and I took this out on my father. And I do not have the life that I should have been leading. I should have been a teacher. I should have been a professional. I should be retired now. I should have a wife now. I should do this or whatever that may be in my crazy mind. But I know one thing that there's only one way out of this hell, and that is through spiritual means. You got nothing else. So is this the hill you want to die on? Are you willing to sacrifice the one life you have to show God that he let you down, to show God that you're angry at him to the point where you are willing to die to teach God a lesson? because that is what we are going to do. There is no other way out of this disease. You don't have a financial way of getting out of it. You don't have a surgical way of getting out of it. There's no medical way of getting out of it. Nothing, you got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing in the way of a path out of hell. The only way I can I can get this. Uh, the only way I can recover is through a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. So think about this long and hard. Do you have so huge a resentment against God that you're going to die from this disease, it's permanent, progressive, and fatal. You're going to die from this disease to teach God a lesson. He's going to cry when you do. He's going to cry when you do. But life will go on. The dogs bark. But the wagon train continues. Somebody else will step in to fill the breach. We would love it to be you. There's people out there that need you to sponsor them. There are people out there that need your help. You have a story that could help a lot of people. You have a story, you have a history that could really make a difference in the lives of people that are suffering as you have suffered. Why don't you join us on that broad highway? Come on, let it go. God doesn't make too tough terms with people who earnest, earnestly seek him. He's going to run to you when you walk to him. Give it a chance. 
this isn't a dress rehearsal. Give it a chance. Taste the sweetness of this world. We're going to have a blast at the OA birthday in LA. We're going to have a blast on our regular meetings at Scottsdale and wherever you're going, family afterward and all this other stuff. We have a riot because we love each other. Even though we may not know each other, you know me better than my friends. I'm going to my high school reunion in Chicago on October the 15th. I went to Mather High School in Chicago. I graduated in 1972. And there's going to be people there that I have known since 1959. We started kindergarten together on September the 8th, 1959. I've known them a long time. I knew their mother, their father, their grandmother, their grandfather on both sides. I knew their sisters and their brothers and their cousins and their aunts and their uncles. But you know me better than they do because you speak the language of the heart. You know right where I live. When I see them, some of them, I'm very familiar. I talk to them all the time. Some of them I don't talk to more than once every five years when we are 10 years, when we have a reunion. I see their stuff on Facebook. That's a kind of a perpetuating tool for relationships is the Fakakta Facebook. Most of it's a waste of time, but okay, I can see this one had a grandson and this one had a granddaughter or this one's sick or this one's whatever. It's fine. You know me a lot better than they do. You know right where I live. You know why I was so preoccupied with food. You know everything about me that anybody would ever need or could know about me and I about you. Don't piss away your opportunity to be with people who speak and understand the language of the heart. This is the greatest way of life. You'll make friends. You'll see, oh, the places you'll go and oh, the people that you'll see. Oh, I envy you. I wish I was just starting out too. I have been as far away as Jerusalem, Israel. And I have been as close as right here in Arizona or Chicago or when I was living in Eugene, Oregon. Oh, what a journey it's been. What a journey it's been. I wouldn't have traded it for all the magic beans in any fairy tale you could possibly name. And I wouldn't trade it for another life. Sometimes I think I would, but I really wouldn't. What a glorious, glorious, what a glorious kinship we have amidst Overeaters Anonymous. And now with Zoom, with the pandemic, God moved in and made the entire planet one intergroup. I regularly go to meetings with people in Pennsylvania, Georgia, England, Ireland, Italy, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, California, Arizona, Oklahoma, you na- Illinois, you name it. 
you name it. And they are in our meetings, both on Vision and our Scottsdale meetings and here this morning. Just what I know of, we have people here from Sweden, Ireland, England, and most of the states within the United States, Israel, Australia, New Zealand. We have people here from all over creation. And we have come together, not because I'm giving away cars, not because we're giving away million dollar raffle tickets, but because here is a place where the language of the heart is spoken. This is not a dress rehearsal to emancipate from this obsession of what other people think of us, to emancipate and become the human being you were destined to be, to emancipate from a struggle with food that goes on every minute of every day, to reach that benign, that benign place where you just don't give a damn about the food anymore. Don't miss it. Don't miss it because you're pissed off at God because somebody died or somebody didn't love you or somebody went east when you wanted them to go west. Those are tragic things. There are tragedies among us. Help us bear them with you. Help us because you can put that into good use when you save the life of a still struggling person. And isn't that what it says in the big book on page 77 when it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Isn't that in keeping with everything we know? Let's continue. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. Alcohol wasn't the great persuader. Pain was the great persuader. Humiliation was the great persuader. Alcohol or food just brought that pain and humiliation about. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. And the reasonableness for me came from this idea that said, I cannot continue my vendetta against God. I cannot continue my vendetta against God. It was not in my best interest to continue any vendetta against my higher power. And so in this paragraph, we see over and over and over again that it's time to let these angers go, just like we're going to be called upon to let the anger against other human beings, institutions, and postulates go. We are going to have to let our anger against God go. I'm going to repeat this again because it's vital that you understand this and you won't remember it unless you teach it to other people. There is no way out of the filth and the slavery of this disease than through God and the spiritual steps, the spiritual kit laid at our feet. There, you got nothing else. There is no way to buy it. There's no way to achieve it. There's no way to have it until you earn it. Let's continue. Sometimes this was a tedious process. It doesn't have to be. 
We hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. My prayer for you today is that you will let go of these resentments against God faster and sooner than I did. I came into the synagogue as a child. For whatever reason, I struggled to read Hebrew. I just, I, I couldn't, couldn't grasp it. The prayers meant nothing to me. They're in Hebrew. They still are. The, the, most of this stuff just didn't mean anything to me. I came from a father who hated God because of the murder and the mayhem that he had witnessed firsthand and in close proximity to the people he loved the most when he was 14 years old in a place called Russia, a long way from where I lived. And if it's an issue like that, it's gonna be in the tissues. And his fear, his anger, his absolute craziness with God seeped into my life because he blamed God for what happened to his father, mother, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, nieces, and nephews who were murdered, murdered, obliterated off the face of the earth. He alone survived and he was 14 years old. And I'm growing up with a man who hates God and who has such cynicism that he told me every day of my life, they're going to come and kill us. They hate us and they're going to come and kill us. And this is something he would say every single day. When they came to kill me, I got away. I wasn't home. One day they will come to kill you. And if they don't kill you, they'll kill your children because that's what they do. And I'm growing up in this as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old, and a six-year-old. Let me tell you, it makes, it, 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 put, it makes a mark on you. You hear this from your father all the time. It has an effect on you. And an intellectual refutation of his facts were, were not, I, it didn't make a difference. And my mother would run after him and say, you can't grow up like him. You can't, you're going to be like him. If you believe like him, my mother would say to me every day of my life, all people are the same. There's good and bad in every person. There's good and bad in this group. There's good and bad in that group. And she would always say, you take a black man, a white man, a Jewish man, a Catholic man, and a Protestant man, and you dip them in Lake Michigan, they will be equally wet. And she would teach me the other way. And I didn't want to listen to her because it was easier to listen to him. And I'm growing up in this. And now I've got an eating disorder and holy mackerel, do I have an eating disorder? And I've got to find a way to recover. And you present me with a God-based solution. Now I'm not exactly on board with that. Because I've got a few issues that I inherited from my dad. And I remembered my mother. Now, she was crazy, but she wasn't always wrong. And she taught me that there is good and bad in every group, in every person. And she, I could hear her saying it now. You take a white man, a black man, a green man, an orange man, a Catholic man, a Jewish man, a Protestant man, a, a, a Buddhist man, 
a Jewish, you put them in Lake Michigan and they will be equally wet. I got to go with her on this one. I got to go with her. She might have been crazy, but she wasn't always wrong. And more than I wanted to admit, I became her in a lot of areas of my life. I couldn't hang on to his ways anymore. I feel horrible about what happened to my relatives so far away and so long before I was born. But I'll tell you something selfishly, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been born. My dad never would have come to America. There'd have been no reason for him to come here. And I wouldn't have been born. I'm not saying I'm glad it happened. I'm not saying that. But I'm using it as a way to illustrate for you who are listening here that God takes these things and makes something out of them that is a positive result. If that murder and mayhem had not happened so very long ago and for no good reason whatsoever, other than they celebrated Sabbath on Saturday and Friday night rather than Sunday, I would not have been born. My daughter would never have been born. My grandsons would never have been born. I'm not glad it happened. I'm not saying that. Don't throw that at me. I am not glad that it happened. I'm showing you what I believe to be the justice of God. Let's absorb this. I'm going to turn this back over to Asia. But before I do, I'm going to ask you for a few things. Number one, no math. No math questions. No food questions. Let's not waste our time on food questions. And if you asked a question last 